Well, I read the Bible devotionally uh, almost every day, and I highly recommend it as a practice for you as well, because reading the Bible has changed my life. Literally, it has changed my life. By the way, that's one of the reasons that we uh, are reading through the New Testament this year together. So pick up the fourth quarter. Books are out in the lobby. If you have not started with us, pick up the fourth quarter and start reading with us. This will be a great quarter to read. We're, we're in the book of John, and we'll be reading the latter part of the New Testament together. And then you can roll right in and pick up uh, quarter one if you want to. These books that we're going through, we didn't write these. They're very good. They give you readings for each day, a reading from the gospel, and then a reading from not one of the gospels, one of the letters or afterwards, and then a brief reading from Psalm. And it gives you a like two or three paragraph explanation of each and a little devotional thought. They're very good. Sometimes they're great. Um, so I highly recommend it. And uh, pick this up with us. Those of you who've gotten behind, that's okay. Don't worry. Just plug in right where we are and keep going. Reading through the New Testament this year because reading the Bible changes your life, but it's hard, right? And to plumb the depths of understanding the Bible, you have to do Bible study. Frankly, sometimes to get anything out of it at all, you have to do Bible study because the Bible was written in a radically different context than the context we live in, time and place. The people were different, the surroundings were different, and you have the, the purpose of Bible study is to kind of get us into the shoes of the writer and the first readers. That just helps us understand the nuances of what's being said to us, the, the lessons that are being taught us, so, so that we can apply those to our lives. Well, this summer, we're going to engage here on Sunday mornings in a lengthy Bible study. We're going to work our way through the book of 1 Peter this summer. 1 Peter's in the New Testament, and we're calling this summer series Endure. So we'll explain a little bit today, and, and as we go on through the summer, we'll explain that. We're going to look at 1 Peter section by section, sometimes verse by verse, and I'm going to begin that exercise today by giving us some introductory information, and then we're just going to look quickly, fly over the first two verses of the introduction of this letter. Now, I know because I was in the nine o'clock service, the first part of this, you know, I'm giving a kind of introduction to 1 Peter, and it was a little boring, so I'm telling you that in advance so you can stay engaged because we'll do some giddy up at the end. But the first part of it is a little bit dry for some of you. So I want to set the stage for us a little bit. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with a kind of academic look at some of the circumstances surrounding the letter to help us understand it a little better. So we're going to talk about who wrote it, who was it written to, and what were the circumstances that this letter was addressing. And then we're going to end by looking at that theme of endurance, and I'll kind of set us up for our conversation this summer. This theme is going to be woven in and out, and it will reappear in various ways through the summer. So let's start with the most basic facts about the Bible. The Bible is divided into two large sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The larger of the two sections is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is filled with the books that were written before Jesus. They include things like an account of the creation of the world and then various accounts of prehistorical events. That, that's the time before humans were actually recording their journey. And after this, the entire history of the formation and the establishment and the rise and the fall and the rise again of the people of Israel as a nation is covered. 
Sprinkled in through that are some proverbial teachings and some songs. And prominently sprinkled in are, and they're sort of collected together at the, mostly at the back of the Old Testament, are prophetic books. And these books include sermons and songs and, and diatribes about the spiritual condition of the people who were going on that journey and trying to follow God and worship Him. Also, interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, there are these fascinating and sometimes cryptic references to a hero who would one day come and make all things right. And they, they called him the Messiah. After the Old Testament was finished, there was a 300-year period of silence. During this period, the Greeks first and, and then the Romans conquered and ruled what had been the independent land of Israel and the land where Jesus would ultimately be born. And then... Jesus is born, and after that, the New Testament. And the New Testament are books written by Jesus' followers about Jesus and about the spread of his story. They include the biographies of his life, a history of the early church, especially stories about Peter and Paul, and letters from various ones of the apostles to various churches. 1 Peter is one of those letters. Okay, so who wrote this letter? Amongst scholars, there's general, you know, there's considerable agreement that this letter was written, at least in part, by the same Peter who was one of the first followers of Jesus. Peter's given name was Simon, but Jesus called him Peter, which in his language meant rock. So Jesus gave Peter the nickname Rocky. Now, the reasons most scholars believe Rocky wrote this letter are, number one, he identifies himself as Peter in the letter, and there's simply no other Peter in the life of the church that could have identified himself that way, that prominently. Now, you might think that would be the end of the discussion, except there are examples of letters being written under someone else's name in the ancient world. That wasn't considered plagiarism. There are even Christian letters that were written under someone else's name, and there are scholars who believe that's what happened with Peter. Someone later a disciple of Peter or a group of disciples of Peter's wrote the letter and to give it authority, they wrote it under Peter's name. Well, another reason to believe that Peter is the one that wrote this letter is the author of this letter seems to speak with a fully defined and unquestioned authority. It's worth remembering there were times even when the apostle Paul had to defend himself, but not this author. And that would make sense if it was actually written by Peter. Finally, you know, probably the best reason to, to believe that Peter wrote this letter, the Peter, is because there's not really good reasons to doubt it. Here's what I mean. The primary reason that scholars began to doubt that Peter was the author of this letter is because the Greek of the letter is so good. Seriously. If you know the story of Peter's life, you will remember that Peter was an unschooled Galilean fisherman. And he would have grown up speaking street-level Aramaic and Torah Hebrew. So how do we explain the intricate Greek text of 1 Peter? For a few scholars, that means, you know, Peter obviously must not have written this. But there are a couple of explanations that have been given, and I think they're both right, that would explain that. Number one, by the time this letter is written, you, remember, we're decades removed from the young guy that Jesus first met. And by the time of this writing, Peter has traveled the world including the Greek-speaking world. So we have to allow for some considerable growth in Peter. Secondly, there are almost certainly people who were helping Peter write this letter, acting as his editor, and doing what Rhonda does sometimes for me, cleaning up his Greek. In fact, 
In chapter 5, verse 12, Peter actually mentions someone. He says, specifically, Silas helped him write this letter. Look at that reference. At, at the end of the, the letter, he notes that, you know, Silas helped me write this. Okay, so Peter wrote the letter, so what? They said, trying their best not to get bored. Well, to me, the thing that makes this important for us is the fact that in this letter, we are listening to the very guy who was at Jesus' right hand throughout his ministry. This guy saw Jesus on top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah. This was the guy whose mother-in-law was healed by Jesus directly. This guy was the first one to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He saw all of Jesus' most significant miracles, and he heard all of his most important teaching. He was the guy who tried to walk on water. Peter was the guy who denied Jesus, and then later, in a profound and intimate moment, was restored by Jesus. He was clearly the leader of the church in its first chapter. He saw thousands of people converted because of his preaching, converted to the cause, and once he was miraculously, miraculously delivered from prison, and he had an extensive ministry, even to the city of Rome itself. In this letter, we're hearing from that guy. So if you're pretty new to faith stuff, and I know a handful of you are, or if you're new to Bible study, and I imagine there's more than a handful of you who are, then I pray that this will be a great place for you to start. Again, in 1 Peter, we get to hear from Peter himself. So this summer, we need to find out more about him, more about the context of this great letter, and just let this, the truths of this soak into us. Now, I also know that some of you have been doing Bible study for years, so I've been praying that for us, this would, reviewing 1 Peter, that this would be a refresher and, and a wake-up for us. You're going to hear a little bit of why when we get to the end, and I just unpack in a general sense our theme. So Peter wrote the letter. Uh, who, who received it? Well, while it's widely acknowledged that Peter wrote the letter, identifying the recipients of the letter is much more controversial. It turns out this is kind of a big deal, so stay with me. I'm going to read the two-verse introduction, and then we're going to answer that question, who wrote the letter. So this is just the two verses by which Peter introduces the letter. It's a pretty typical introduction for an ancient Near Eastern letter. You know, when we write a letter, by the way, those of you who are under uh, 35, letter is a, if you took a piece of paper and a, a pen and you'd write, you know, dear Diane, I love you, happy anniversary, signed your handsome husband. Diane, of course, would then look around and wonder who she got that from. The, the, in the ancient Near East, they would begin a letter by identifying the sender. And then they would give this sort of elaborate, sometimes or not so elaborate, description of the recipient of the letter. So that's what Peter does here. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as we read a couple of verses here. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world. I'm reading from the NIV. That's strangers in the world. The NIV takes some liberty here. That's one word in the Greek. It is sometimes translated exiles. It's sometimes translated foreigners. It means, you know, marginalized, out of it, at the fringe of society scattered throughout and now he gives a list of Roman provinces that occupied what is modern day Turkey scattered throughout Pontus Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia so he intended for this to be a circular letter that would be sent from church to church who have been listen to this 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. This is one of the many reasons why from very early on, Christians were Trinitarian. Muslims think that Christians are heretical because we believe in three gods, which we do not. There are even folks who dial into the Bible, like some of you come from Jehovah's Witness background. Jehovah's Witnesses read the Bible, and they think that the idea of a trinity is heretical. Where did that come from? The word trinity is never used in the Bible. Indeed, it's not. But the stuff of the trinity, the blood of the trinity is throughout the Bible. And here Peter can't help himself. He's not making a theological statement. This is just spilling out of him. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. You can be seated. I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to just let you see another take on this. They say, I don't know what this means, but they say that the New International Version is basically written for a seventh grade reading level. There's another translation called the New Living Translation. They took the Greek, translated it, but they tried to write it more for a third grade reading level, which seems more appropriate to a Northern Virginia audience. So I'm going to read this also from the New Living Translation this morning, just to let you get a different take on it. So this is a New Living Translation. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you know, English, generally speaking, is more direct. We use these shorter sentences typically. Greek just piles things on top of one another adding phrases on top of phrases and modifying them with other phrases. This is a more lyrical, beautiful language. English is more direct. So this is from Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Isn't that interesting the way they took that phrase? God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. So they make it in English a more active, direct statement. And his spirit has made you holy. As a result... You have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Mike, bring this map up, if you would. I just want you to see real quick where this letter circulates from. So get you know, the Mediterranean Sea is in the middle of the map, obviously. If you go to the south, that's northern Africa, Egypt, Cyrene. If you go to the east, that's Israel, Palestine, and uh, Syria. If you go up northwest, Italy, that's where Peter was at the time, he sends this letter over to the region that is circled, modern-day Turkey, and those are the, the Roman provinces that would have occupied modern-day Turkey at the time. Cappadocia, you see, Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia. Roman territories filled mostly with Gentiles, but with a small population of Jews that had been scattered because of trade or because of persecution, because of Roman rule, they had moved to other parts of the world. This was the territory where Paul ministered and, and started a number of churches, and it's probably an area that Peter wouldn't have known that much about. So who are the people that got this letter? Uh, well, in his introduction, Peter calls them God's elect and exiles or foreigners or in the NIV, strangers in the world. Then later, in chapter 6 of verse 2, he describes Jesus Christ as a cornerstone laid, quote, in Zion. You getting the theme? Then in verse 9 of chapter 2, he calls his readers a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Look, these are terms that are lifted right out of the Old Testament. So what does that tell us? Well, a well-known commentary on 1 Peter written by the 4th century church historian named Eusebius 
draws the conclusion that Peter is writing to Jews who were living as non-Roman citizens in Roman-dominated Asia Minor. Roman citizens and Roman, non-Roman citizens and Roman-dominated Asia Minor. And this is a big deal since Eusebius represents a very early witness to Peter's audience being non-citizen Jews. Over the centuries, obviously, many have followed Eusebius' interpretation. And yet, throughout church history, there have been dissenting voices who've disagreed with that picture. In fact, today, there's nearly unanimous agreement that Peter was writing to Gentiles in these territories and not Jews. Why do scholars think that? I'll tell you in a minute why that's a big deal. First of all, this was territory that was first evangelized by the Apostle Paul. And most of Paul's work had been among Gentiles. Then in the letter itself, Peter encouraged his readers in chapter 1, verse 14, stay with me, boring stuff, but stay with me, to, quote, not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, Peter reminds them of their, quote, empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. And now neither of these things could we imagine Peter saying to Jews. Even in the paragraph where he calls them a chosen people and a holy nation, he ends that paragraph by saying, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This kind of language isn't even understandable when considering a Jewish audience. And there's more if you read through the letter. Now, this is the sort of academic argument you could read at any commentary you pick up about 1 Peter. You could probably find this same discussion on the Wikipedia page for 1 Peter. I didn't look it up, but I'm sure there is one. And they'll have something like this. But they don't talk about what this means. Why is this important? Listen, one of the commentaries I read said this. No New Testament letter is so consistently addressed, directly or indirectly, to Israel and it marks Israel in quotation marks. He also went on to suggest that no New Testament letter was so thoroughly soaked in Old Testament images and themes. In other words, Peter seems to be writing to Gentiles as if they were Jews. All this, remember, came from the Peter, if you know the story of the book of Acts, you'll remember this, Peter, who had to be rebuked by Paul at one point for agreeing with others that Gentile Christians were second-class Christians. Peter began his ministry believing that being a disciple of Jesus was just a deeper form of Judaism. So if he wrote this stuff to Gentiles, then he's made a dramatic shift. That would mean by the time he wrote this letter, he seems to be so convinced by the grace offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he had come to believe that God's work, God's chosenness is living through and working in people who call on the name of Jesus and not ethnic Judaism. I'm going to say that again. By the time he's written this letter, he seems to be so convinced by the grace offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he's come to believe that God's work, God's chosenness, is living through and working in the people who call on the name of Jesus and not ethnic Judaism. By the way, it seems Paul agreed. In Galatians 3.29, Paul said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You know, this is why we read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the history of the the rise and fall of the establishment foundation of the nation of Israel. Why do we read that? 
The Old Testament is a history of God's movement among God's people. That history is now our history, regardless of your ethnicity. In fact, Paul describes all of us as being grafted into that history. So it seems clear that Peter was writing to Gentile Christians scattered throughout Roman-ruled Asia Minor. Let's add to that picture. These people were marginalized and they were social outcasts. That's the primary meaning of that word exile or or stranger in the world used in verse 1. Later, in chapter 2, verse 11, he calls them aliens and exiles. And when he begins to make his teaching practical, in chapter 2, Peter starts addressing, chapter 2 and 3, he's addressing how you deal with government and how you should live with one another and wives and husbands, how you should handle yourself in, in your family. There's only one economic class. There's only one working class that Peter addresses specifically, and that's slaves. These were non-citizen Gentiles who mostly occupied the bottom rungs of society. We've got to add one more ingredient to our picture of the recipients. It's clear from the letter that they were also being mistreated perhaps physically persecuted. This may have been a general condition of their station in life, but the mistreatment was exacerbated by their faith. They were experiencing hardship because of their conversion to Christianity. So the acknowledged leader of the church, the man who probably had known Jesus as well as anyone in the world, the great Apostle Peter writes a letter intended to be circulated among a group of churches in Asia Minor where the members were on the edges of society and were being troubled, persecuted because of their faith. What was his advice? What did Peter tell these mistreated, socially marginalized Gentile Christians? How were they to live? And what has that got to do with us? And now let's get to the payoff. Everything. So, I think Peter's message can be summarized in two key ideas. You will hear these hinted at, spoken directly to, wormed around, and warmed up throughout the whole summer. Number one, continue to live a loving, holy lifestyle, regardless of your circumstances. I don't care if your marriage is in shambles. I don't care if you're married to someone who's clueless. I don't care if you're miserable. I don't care if your work is awful and you feel no sense of purpose. I don't care what the government is saying to you or about you. Continue to live a loving, holy lifestyle, regardless of your circumstances. Secondly, find your identity in what God is doing in you, and through you, and around you, and not in your place in society, and and not whether or not society accepts you. Find your identity, who you are, in what God is doing in you, through you, and around you. For simplicity's sake, let's reduce this message to one word, endure. Peter tells us to endure. Can we riff on that for a minute? Endure, to continue, to persist, to remain, to stay, to abide. Except for Peter, it means more than merely doing any of that. It means to do so willingly, hopefully, responsibly. For me, it's easiest to think of what Peter means by enduring if I think of our behavior and our attitude as operating along a spectrum of behavior and attitude. 
And whenever I preach this summer, I'm going to hit this again. I want you to look at and think about this spectrum of behavior and attitude for a minute. At one end of the spectrum, I want you to think of victimhood. This is one way to respond to difficult circumstances. This is me convinced that my children never get a fair shake. It's all politics anyway, the victim says. Oh, oh, I, I could have done that, but dot, 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 the victim says, and the but, dot, 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 not only explains away any of their responsibility, but it ensures against any growth and change. The victim is Adam facing God and saying, well, I'm naked because that woman gave me an apple. And by the way, you gave me that woman. Victimhood says, why me? Why, why is this happening to me? Why now? Victimhood stays with that question even though there's no answer. Victimhood gladly accepts the small bit of relief that why me offers. Victimhood recognizes, listen to this, victimhood recognizes how hard it is, nearly impossibly hard, to be holy, to work hard, to save money, to resist temptation, to be falsely accused, to submit, to trust, to accept my lack of control, to serve, to be on time, to show up, to obey, to be good, to do my part, to do it well, to love, to grow, to stay alert, to be humble. It's very, very hard. Might as well cut myself a break, the victim says, and then relaxes. Besides, I bet nobody else is doing it, says the victim with self-consoling relief, relieving themselves of guilt. On the other end of the spectrum of behavior and attitude is entitlement. I couldn't figure out which one of these was a better title of the chapter about Northern Virginia. You have no right to do that to me, says the entitled. That's not fair. I deserve mine too. My child was just as good as every other child trying out, better than most of them. Who's your manager, says the entitled. Some of Job's advisors... Israel's prophets proclaiming peace when there was no peace. And the prodigal son who wanted his goods were entitled. In fact, the prodigal son and the elder son were entitled. I've performed for you, God. I've been a good person, even religious. Now you owe me, says the mistakenly entitled. Entitled people believe that it shouldn't be hard. They explain this by thinking, I've done my part. Now you need to come through for me. In that sense, they deny reality. This is how they build themselves at work. This is how they build a marriage. This doesn't work. At least the victim knows it's hard. The victim just lets herself off the hook. But the entitled, he doesn't believe it should be hard. And he expects some payback for everything he's put in. Ironically, the net effect is the same. Holiness and love are short-circuited at both ends of the spectrum. Holiness and love are hard and they can only be arrived at through endurance. So to the downtrodden, put upon, and struggling Asia minorers, Peter says, keep going. Stay at it. Build your life on the holiness and love that you were taught from the beginning. You can do it. In fact, God's already doing it in you. It's who you are. Peter tells them to trust, to hope, to remember, to submit, to obey, to continue to live out holiness and love, and to love one another tenaciously. 
Endurance is being self-controlled in all circumstances. Endurance is setting your hope on the grace that will be given when Jesus Christ is fully revealed. Endurance is abstaining from sinful desires. Endurance is Jesus going to the cross, insulted but not retaliating, suffering but making no threats. And by that endurance, he saved the world. But to endure, you must know who you are. And Peter will deal with this as well through this letter. You are not who your college says you are. You are not who your friends say you are. You are not what your bank account says or your job title or your marital status. You are incredibly special, chosen, in fact, by God's determinative choice. You are becoming more and more like God in your actions and in your attitude. He's doing that through his spirit. And you are being made into someone who can consistently obey and have an impact on the world because of your obedience. That's who you are. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Northern Virginia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Father, you know, we recognize this morning it's hard either way. <laughs> we can practice endurance and we can pay the price on the front end and reap a harvest of righteousness or we can be a victim or we can be entitled and pay the price on the back end and ruin lives, and, and hurting others, hurting ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would train us, because that's what it takes. Train us to endure. Honestly, Lord, we recognize that we do not live in circumstances nearly as dire as the circumstances surrounding the people who first received this letter. We have brothers and sisters today who are living in that circumstance. And we pray that you would strengthen them and help them endure. But Lord, for us, we're thankful that you've given us this vineyard, this place, this path. And yet, you know, God, we have to honestly recognize that the way we live and where we live, it does not train us in endurance. So we need a special work in our lives from you to learn, to, to build lives that can remain, that can stay, that can abide, that can persist and do so gladly and willingly and responsibly. Father, do that work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great day. Happy Father's Day.